Episode number two, Chanel, Fat Robbie and Stan get into trouble. Hello and welcome to Wages of Zen. This is episode two or three, depending on whether you think zero is a number or not. I left you last week with a mic drop moment, a story concerning Zen master IQ and his student. In this story, IQ thwarts his student by consecutively writing the character for attention each time he's asked to demonstrate something of great wisdom. The moral of this yarn, such as it is, is easy for the intellect to grasp. Obviously, EQ is pointing at the importance of attention. But in order to truly grasp his meaning, we have to consider the concept of attention through our mental faculties, but also explore it as a physical state or feeling using the tools of our conscious experience. This final experiential exploration of attention is the very centre of the practice of Zen meditation. But before we go down that road, let's get some definitions under our belt. As the terminology and wisdom of both science and Zen Buddhism can bewilder the best of us, I'm being careful to make this as easy to understand as possible. One part of this task is to clarify any terms that might be unfamiliar. So let's unpack... Oh, I nearly said it. Let's closely examine attention to see what it is and why it might be important. First of all, let's look at what science has to say about attention. The contemporary psychological definition is pretty straightforward. Attention is defined as the concentration of awareness on a particular phenomenon to the exclusion of other stimuli. Hmm, makes sense. Furthermore, attention has been conveniently categorised into four types. Selective, divided, sustained and executive. You might use selective attention, for example, when you're in a loud bar and trying to focus in on what your friend Tonya is saying about your mutual acquaintance Chanel from accounts, who apparently is totally getting it on with fat Robbie from the mailroom. This is difficult. Divided attention is basically when we attempt to split our concentration between two or more actions at one time. So that would be attempting to listen to Tonya whilst trying to text Chanel to tell her what Tonya is saying about her. That's more difficult. Next is sustained attention. Essentially, this means undivided attention or the ability to maintain a selective and focused perspective on a task, even under distracting conditions. This is you at work the next morning, fiercely concentrating all day on the screensaver in front of you, pretending to work to avoid either talking to Chanel or Tonya. This is extremely difficult. And finally, executive attention which refers to the awareness we use to regulate our emotional responses under difficult circumstances. This is you, a few days later, listening with heartfelt sincerity to Chanel's mailroom love confession, whilst inwardly wondering whether you should tell her that you and Robbie drunkenly humped two weeks before and he gave you herpes. So after that exhaustive and robust assessment of what the sciencey people have to say about attention, my PhD must be in the post, we need to consider how attention is perceived on the subjective, personal level. By this I mean to explore the human experience of the state of attention, referring to the spiritual literature and my observations of self-experiment and practice. I wonder, before we continue, what your first memory, your first experience of attention as a word or concept was. If you're anything like me, God help you all, your primary knowledge of the idea of attention probably arose in early childhood, most likely in a school or parental environment. As I remember, teachers and my parents appeared extremely fond of me learning to pay attention, and it became an all-too-familiar reprimand as the years passed. And yet it's only recently in adulthood that I've reflected upon what this vague directive actually meant, and how it might have affected me in my formative years. A primary school or play school 
The instruction to pay attention generally implied that it was time to return my concentration from my playmates towards something, anything else. Fortunately, at this tender age, that usually involved nothing more than the gentle transition from mucking around with my chums to maybe finger painting or story time. As life unfolded and school and parental circumstances became, at least from my perspective, inexplicably more serious, the instruction to pay attention evolved a negative tone. For me, it became synonymous with the forcible removal of my effortless focus from usually an enjoyable or fascinating task towards doing something onerous, in my experience, homework. This repeated eviction of my natural state of attention to a seemingly forced and somewhat arbitrary piece of coursework or revision quickly became frustrating, and I soon mastered the art of faking it, as I could see that neither the teachers or my parents could actually tell whether I was genuinely concentrating or not. This was seminal in my path to becoming a virtuoso daydreamer and textbook career failure, able to strike a rictus expression of stern application whilst mumbling nonsensical numbers and formulas to myself and chewing the end of my pencil. My mother looked on, her heart swollen with pride at her soon-to-be astronaut son. But clearly, as I'm writing this on a cheap laptop, very much on Earth and not from a secret colony on Jupiter, it was all a glorious sham. In truth, the algebraic waffle barely penetrated the outer membranes of my mind. And while my frowning face told a story of august edification, in my head, I was lining up Optimus Prime and Skeletor against the A-Team and Monkey to see who would take the crown in the ultimate scrap of the 80s TV gods. And there's one of those autobiographical tangents I promised in the last episode. You're welcome. Essentially, I'm suggesting that we're taught by our parents and peers that it's a good thing to pay attention, however we're never actually shown its significance to our lives beyond school or adolescence, or in fact how to cultivate it. It simply remains for most people an unexplained and unexplored imperative. In this instance, the individual becomes adept, or not, at dragging their mind's focus repeatedly back to their geography assignment or petty paperwork later in life, and over time gradually judging their effectiveness at this toil and then placing that judgment on a personal scale, with often quite extreme results, either considering themselves to be blessed with laser-like concentration, or berating themselves at regular intervals because the remote controls in the dishwasher again and their shirts on back to front. Speaking from my own experience, I've noticed that humans tend to either over or underestimate their capacity and competency to achieve things. And to be honest, neither of these conditions is ideal. I don't know, maybe there's a middle way. But you might be asking, why is attention so important? Well, you could argue that it's not. It's perfectly possible to live your life from birth to death without ever contemplating attention, and I suspect that many people do. This doesn't make them by default bad people or morally or ethically reprehensible in any way. The individual, as a part of their existence, has to choose, consciously or otherwise, some method to navigate themselves through their lives. Now, anyone who is conscious and over the age of reason understands that life is hard. Our conscious experience vacillates between pleasure and pain, joy and tragedy, transcendent euphoria and heart-rending grief. This condition, the nature of experience, is the common ground for all animals, including our species. No one is exempt from this circle of birth and death, of growth and decay. No amount of money, possessions, knowledge or intoxicants will provide you with a permanent escape from this cycle. So at some point, 
a choice is made, or more correctly, evolves. As you are at the behest of your parents' genetic code and their socio-economic conditions throughout your childhood, the sensory data provided by life filters through your respective genetic and environmental atmosphere, and slowly decisions will be taken and those ideas bonded into ideologies. In the first case, let's consider the individual who places little importance on paying attention to his existence. According to Buddhist tradition, this kind of person is lost. They've strayed from the path and are now ignorant and confused. Not ignorant as in stupid, they've just failed to notice the ephemeral nature of mind and the inherent wisdom of the body. And because of this, they've fallen under a bewitching spell. Like every conscious being, they've been swept along in their stream of consciousness, but they are frantically and aimlessly swimming against the current. This exhausting struggle perpetuates a convincing and problematic illusion, one that they are somehow separate from their experience. By this, it is meant that they believe there is a self, underwritten by the pronoun I, by which they refer to themselves. This is in contrast and different to others and the world out there. This lack of attention to the functioning of their minds and the sensations of their bodies helps create the compelling belief that they are the author of their thoughts and that they possess a consciousness and a body, apparently disconnected from what is happening in their lives. This primary boundary, or more correctly, their insistent belief in this imaginary line in the sand, causes all types of issues. As they are, are entangled in and enslaved by the tyrannical drivel offered up by their minds, and over time they become addicted to listening to the wonderful dramas that naturally unfold in our feverish imaginations, and to then mistake this drama for reality. If we rejoin our friends from before, it's likely that Chanel believes that she and her behaviours and actions are isolated from the people and the world around her, and therefore feels that her, her conduct is harmless or completely natural. She may believe that the Chanel show is a drama tour de force, an absolute five-star must-watch for everyone. This belief originates in her unhealthy attachment to her thoughts, feelings and emotions. Sadly, in reality, the only one watching the Chanel show is Chanel. She is and always will be an audience of one. Unfortunately, enraptured by the never-ending cobblers that her mind blurts out, she insists on its quality because it must mean something after all, right? Well, as the Zen proverb goes, maybe, maybe not. It could be argued that Chanel's strategy for life is not working out too well for her. If she continues to be unconscious of her detrimental attachment to the contents of her mind, she will appear to have no escape, no choice but to repeat the negative actions and behaviours of before, even though they served her so badly. But there is always a choice. So what could Chanel do differently? There are, of course, many options open to her, one of which would be meditation. If Chanel were to take up a regular meditation practice, this would gradually foster an awareness of this drama, allowing her to see these temporary mental events exactly as they are. It would provide a space so that she could respond to her internal and external stimuli rather than react to them. So instead, we might see her pause before saying something that hurts others or herself and start being accountable and making better decisions in her life. Sorry, Fat Robbie. This simple witnessing of the mind's activity helps clarify one's experience of life. 
A genuine confidence and trust in mind is soon developed, and the rigid man-made bonds of anxiety, anger, jealousy, greed, ignorance, apathy, et al., are slowly investigated and weakened. Until that time, Chanel might still be found desperately hawking cut-price tickets for a one-woman farce at the stage door. But eventually, I'll hope we'll meet future Chanel, still watching her drama, but now unflustered and resolute, still acknowledging the world of idle gossip and treacherous lustful escapades, but seeing them in time to respond creatively rather than instinctively. Good luck, Chanel. We're all counting on you. I hope that in spite of my dramatisation here that you might be inspired to try meditation. As mentioned earlier, life is hard and although meditation is certainly not a cure, it can be a, an effective tool to prevent, alleviate and place in perspective the essential and ubiquitous problems of the human condition. So if you're still here, you will have learned that attention is the central technique of meditation and that Fat Robbie needs some ointment. Next week, we'll be looking at meditation itself, the public perception of meditation, the various methods, the physical and mental benefits, the trials of a regular practice, and probably lots more. But before I leave you, I'd like to summon up the spirit of the marvellously dishevelled and disagreeable Saint Bob Geldof and say, just give me the feckin' money, which apparently he didn't actually say. I appreciate that this is the absolute apex of optimism, but if you like what you hear, you can fling some shekels and groats into my virtual upturned cap, and that will help me buy some tinned ravioli and a toothbrush. Just go to patreon.com forward slash wages of zen and follow the instructions. Thank you. This week's random ending is in the form of a poem what I wrote a few days ago. It's called The Ballad of Eggpan Stan, and as the protagonist is a real person and it's based on real events, all names and places have been changed to protect the innocent. The poem is a thinly veiled critique of the Gen Z and millennial habit of obsessively gazing at handheld devices and politely suggests that although there's nothing wrong with social media or technology per se, that if one finds the time, one might like to experiment with putting the fucking thing down and actually living your life. Until next week, my friends, I leave you with my Alan Bennett talking head style rendition of The Ballad of Eggpan Stan by Wages of Zen, age six. He's a grafter, Eggpan Stanley, all mucky and manly, dirty and sweaty. He drinks Yorkshire, not Tetley. But soon as he's home, in his hand is his phone, and he's laughing his filthy socks off at the YouTubes or the TikToks, chuckling at a video of other people, chuckling at a video of other people, chuckling. Hmm, I wonder. Will Stan have the time, before his demise, to ask was it wise to spend so much of his life sat on the shitter, scrolling through Twitter, soaking up like a sponge the edited clips of the lives of his chums, hooked on a dopamine hit for every like clicked, never knowing whether to twist or to stick, in a permanent fix to find first and to share, a meme about sea shanties or cats with no hair. Now I know we don't want my advice, but I'd step away from the iPhone and take back my life. I'd wake up and be grateful and smile, cause you're only here once, and it's a brief day between two endless nights. And I know on your deathbed, Stan, you're gonna wish for another breath, another sunset, another kiss. You're not gonna wish that Vampire Diaries had done a season six, 
I'll be pissed off that you'd missed that series finale of that show, you know, the one about depression with the big one from Little Mix. Anyway, he's a good lad, our Stan. He'll do all right, I'm sure. As soon as he gets his foot in the door of a major league firm, he'll never look back. He might never look forward either, knowing him. He might mostly look down at his thin, rectangular hand companion, his face aglow on the toilet seat perched, charmed by the low-resolution thrills of the digital universe. But I wish him the best. I just wish I knew how to suggest that his time's better spent, out of bed and in the world, and that it's good to feel life, meet the sane and unhinged, the joys and the tragedies, the ultimate box set binge, away from the screen. Netflix is an option, Stan. It isn't mandatory.